Look at a Mysterious Universe, Season 28, Episode 15. Coming up on this show, we've got the Power Stones of a Lost Civilization, E.T. past life transplants, and cavorting in the nude with an alien squid man. I'm Benjamin Grundy, joining me is Aaron Wright. Wasn't there a film that recently was released? Oh, that was the Aqua one. That's Yeah, it's like a fish man, it's not a squid not man. Not a squid man. <laughs> squid man has more appendages. <laughs> Which could be a benefit or a drawback, depending on what you think about it. Is this a hot chaff show? It's a little bit of a hot chaff show. Not so much in the, the regular section of the show, but I believe in our plus extension, we are going to go into some uh, mildly scalding chaff. Well, it's... I mean, it's it's like lukewarm from yesterday, but I'm gonna mic- <laughs> I'm gonna microwave it at the end of the show. <laughs> so microwave no, it. no promises. <laughs> Don't you have a bunch of Rex Gilroy stuff coming up? Yeah, look, how there, can you say it's not hot chat? There is a lot of chaff thrown in, but the problem I have is so on the plus show that we released on Tuesday, we started talking about this. We were talking about some of the controversial ideas that had been put forward by the eccentric and uh, unusual researcher Rex Gilroy about the true nature of Australian history, our civilization. You know, there being this uh, progenitor civilization that may have come from the stars, ancient aliens kind of ideas. And so many people emailed in and said, we want to hear more. I want to hear more about this. So I did. I dug a lot deeper and I did pull out all the hot chaff because that's what I was going to do. I was going to focus on the hot chaff. But then I came across all these other stories that made me start going, "Uh, maybe there's something to what Rex Gilroy has been researching for decades decades and he's been dismissed by you know leading universities but in this modern world and I'm beginning to see what's happening in the world how you know we're kind of supposed to believe that you know trusted institutions have our you know obviously like they have our best intentions at heart and you know we should trust them but I'm like I don't believe that anymore none of that I believe anymore and so when I start digging into some of these stories which are quite out there it does make me second guess and go maybe he's onto something Maybe there were these lost civilizations and it is being Mm. ignored and covered up. That's how I felt with Beth Gear when she said she went to bed one night quite early and she woke up nearly drowning in an ocean on an alien planet. And she was rescued by a very handsome, very muscular squid man Um, who took her in his strong, uh, throbbing, muscular arms. Tentacles. And he took her to shore and rescued her. And once I, like, when I first heard that, I thought that's insane. That's, that's ridiculous. But as I heard the story, as the story developed, <laughs> I came around. I came around to the idea See? of the squid See man. See what happens? That's exactly what happens. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to getting to, into that uh, towards the end of the show. But let's dive into this stuff. And uh, as I was saying a little bit earlier or, or pre- on the previous show, is that uh, I didn't realize, but Rex Gilroy had a publication. It was a, a monthly newsletter that he sent out going back from around uh, the early 2000s. Uh, the latest one I found was 2013. And Rex Gilroy, a very beloved and famous researcher of all things weird here in Australia. Very much so. In particular, Yowies, like yep. our, our Bigfoot. And look, I know that if you haven't heard that on the Plus show, you know we were saying that look, we've been critical of Rex you know, in the past because he has done a few things where it's not just focusing on ancient cultures and uh, protocols cultures and stone megaliths and those sorts of things. He also researches the Yowie, he uh, researches big cats. And one of the things that we've always kind of been a little bit suspicious about is that he has these massive plaster casts that he produces. And he goes, well, this plaster class cast clearly is that of a Yowie or, you know, it's, and normally it's just a rock where he's just drawn some chalk over it and gone, well, there you go. So, but I think what- the best one we always talk about was when he was on stage and he brought out a dinosaur footprint and it was just like, 
It was like Big Bird's footprint, like perfectly in plaster. And it was huge. It was, it was like massive. It was like the size of a beach ball. And he's just holding this thing out as if he's got this clear evidence of a dinosaur. Well, that's what he has gone into a great detail about with uh, some of his research for many decades. He was looking at the idea of the burrow jaw, this idea that if you talk uh, to Aboriginal people, they've described there being a reptilian, a large lizard uh, style beast, that a sauropod, essentially, something wandering around on two legs. Bipedal, that, yeah. Bipedal that looks like a Tyrannosaurus rex, for the lack of a better description. And it's been seen, it's it's in Native Australian folklore, it's been seen allegedly by uh, European yeah. settlers. There's so why, even some why would reports. Aboriginal people have the folklore of a bipedal dinosaur? Exactly. Why would that even be Exa- in their folklore? Exactly. It's in their oral traditions and it also shows up uh, in certain uh, drawings and, you know, very, very ancient uh, records that they provide that suggests that, well, yeah, they must have been seeing something. And this isn't megafauna. This is, unless it's been somehow passed down, you know, through their oral traditions and it's just been reproduced, that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like there have been interactions with it. And when you have, you know, modern people coming in, modern cultures going, oh, well, we've seen it too. It suggests that there's something very, very strange going on. And the argument that has been put forward is that, well, uh, even from a cryptozoological point of view, it must be a, a relic group somehow. And it's like, well, that's impossible. Like, it's have you seen the Australian bush? I mean, yes, it's very dense, but there's no way that there's a population of T-Rex that are wandering around out there. So there has to be another answer. And one of those answers, according to uh, Rex Gilroy's research, is that of the time window. And the time window is this idea that uh, I started to dig a lot deeper into because he describes this concept that whether it's natural or somehow induced, there is uh, basically an induction of time slips. It's a tunnel that will open and it will allow things to pass through. And what I mean by things, it could be a large bipedal reptilian. It could be what is described as being like hairy ape men. Hansy, handsome squid. <laughs> a handsome squid man. Hansy, I think you were meaning to say. <laughs> Those sorts of things, which may explain why people have these anecdotal reports of encountering a, a wide range of very unusual things out in the Australian bush, but we have no proof of them. We never have photographs. There's never any bodies lying around. All that we find is the footprints that are left in the, the soft earth. So it's because these things come through, but the portal only stays open for a certain amount of time. It disappears. All of it sounds outrageous, right? I, I, as I'm saying, ridiculous. I know. It. It's, oh, it's ridiculous. But the thing is, is it actually, I didn't realize, and you, you saw me today, Ben, I pulled out all of these different pieces of research and I tried to find if there was other you know, stories backing it up. It actually suggests that this is part of a far richer cultural history that Australia has with a species, a pre-Aboriginal group of people that existed here that were somehow um, seeded possibly by an interdimensional or extraterrestrial species. Okay, so you started off looking at Rex Gilroy and his giant dinosaur tracks, and now you're going, and that got you into ancient Australian civilization. Essentially, yes. Yep, okay. absolutely. All right. So, um, look, I think for, without, you know, I, I don't want to trash Rex because I, I find his work uh, to actually, after, especially after reading this, to be really intriguing. But I think possibly for people like Rex, you know, we've spoken about this with other researchers, I think he's a victim of his own uh, extensive history and research because it suggests to me that he spent so long, you know, focusing on this, that he's developed such a trained eye for things, but you get tunnel vision. Mm. And so, you know, I said this about, you know, um, was Linda Moulton Howe. 
you know, a great researcher, you know, done really fascinating work, has revealed, but seems to, after so many decades being involved in this stuff, sees things that's difficult for other people to see. And hence why I think that's in some circumstances for Rex, why he pulls out these plaster casts and goes, oh, look, it's definitely a dinosaur. And it's like, well, it's, it's just a plaster cast. So um, but I don't, do digress. I'll go back and I'll try and explain this to you in, in essentially in a very succinct fashion, but it is all over the place because I didn't realize that a lot of Rex's work has also been influenced by leading Australian researchers from the 1960s and 1970s. He's done a lot of work with a guy by the name of Don Boyd. Don Boyd was uh, renowned for his uh, research here in Australia. He published a magazine called, I think it was like The Psychic Australian, which changed into the Paranormal Australian magazine. There's still a few copies of them available on uh, eBay, but it's like they're really expensive. It's a couple of hundred bucks to get a few copies. Um, but anyway, I've gone through and I've realized that some of the stories that Rex intertwines into his stuff has come from experiences that have been reported to Don. So it's not just Rex. It's like even though Rex is on the ground talking to people, there's other people that are describing similar things. So let me set the scene for you with this. It's rather controversial, but this is kind of where it really kicks off into this idea that there was a pre-Aboriginal culture here in Australia up to 300,000 years before, well, just 300,000 years, you know, AD. Before present. But yeah, before, yeah, before present, exactly. Um, so we understand that the Aboriginal peoples, you know, modern archaeological records have suggested that perhaps they were here 60 to 65,000 years ago. saying 80 these days, aren't they? Is it 80? Right. So, well, obviously when this was published, it was around, you know, 60,000, but yeah, maybe a little bit old. And they came down through this land bridge that was coming down from, you know, the Papua New Guinea, Indochina kind of an Indonesian area. But that land bridge obviously disappeared once at the end of the last um, ice age. They're now trapped here with the dinosaurs. Well, this is the thing, right? So they've come down. There was already a pre-existing culture here that was possibly some type of, they weren't homo sapiens from what I understand. What? They were like a breakaway. This is what Rex is suggesting. They were a breakaway from uh, homo erectus. Like they were the next kind of step up from homo erectus. In fact, Aboriginal traditions, he writes, speaks of a megalithic people as being pale-skinned culture heroes whom the tribes people encountered upon their arrival from Southeast Asia around 65,000 years ago. They were kind of colloquially termed as the builders. And the builders were this first civilization that Rex says came to call themselves the Uru. They were not only developing the earliest written script, which survives upon rock today, and I'll get into some of that. He's got these rocks that seem to have glyph-like uh, drawings upon them, which obviously, I must say, he's taken chalk and he's kind of drawn over them to suggest that this is some type of Uru hieroglyphics. But he even says that they were such advanced Stone Age builders that they understood agricultural science, astronomy. They eventually developed a hand glider that was uh, crude and also hot air balloon technology that uh, allowed them to be ocean going. So that suggests that they came over in boats and the Aboriginals were here first. No, no. So it suggests that they were here and when the Aboriginal people arrived here 65,000 years ago, this Stone Age culture, but advanced Stone uh -huh. Age culture was already here. And in another article that I was reading, uh, there's a couple of things that kind of stand out. So Rex says that in 2007, he carried out this field investigation into dense bushland, which uh, lies within a creek. And um, this creek kind of followed this uh, path of stratified deposits that extended back into the late Pleistocene volcanic times. And from here, obviously, he found some, you know, um, 
I think there were what he would refer to as artifacts that suggest that there was a pre-Aboriginal culture there. But he points out that it was actually earlier than this that other things had been found. In fact, in 1969, he says, we uncovered a site that contained massive megatools of a kind that only beings of exceptional stature and strength would have been able to use. How big are we talking? He says the people that used these or created these had to be at least 3.6 to 4 metres in height. So hereabouts, I believe, was a population of giant form Homo erectus who shared the area with smaller Homo erectus cousins between 300,000 to over a million years ago. Was it an ancient civilization of Builder Bigfoot? Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's Builder Bigfoot, but w- some of Rex's work, right, does report on people seeing Bigfoot-type creatures. Because whenever you, you see some uh, depiction of Homo erectus, it's a it's a hairy guy. Mm. It's a it's a very large. It's like it looks like a Bigfoot. Yeah, and you covered know, in hair. It's and, like an ape man. It's exactly right. And Rex has reports, anecdotal reports, of people seeing um, these types of creatures showing up in the Blue Mountains region. So does that mean when we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, we need to not acknowledge the Aboriginal people, but the uh, the hairy Bigfoot people <laughs> who were here before them, the ancient builder race of Homo erectus Bigfoot? Well, this is the thing, right? And this is why it's it's such controversial work. It's especially controversial at the moment because it's a heated um, you know topic of debate. But you're absolutely right. The problem is how far back do we go? And because science, and we talk about trust the science, but archaeology keeps on pushing back humanity, like further and further back. And I don't mean as in our development. I mean in our time frame of just how far back the origins of humanity go. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. But part of the issue is that we know Rex Gilroy well. And when you say he found tools and weapons, yes. did he just find a piece of rock that happened to look like a kitchen knife and then he traced it out? You know, with his with his texture, with that is, his marker. That is a distinct possibility, which I I <laughs> haven't seen the photograph. But perhaps if I saw the photograph, it might give us some insight as to what. That and where be. are these tools? Is is Rex Gilroy the only world expert who thinks they're tools, or have other people come along and acknowledged? Yeah, that kind of looks. You know, that well, kind of looks like a giant hammer. Rex has said, and as I pointed out, he said that when he's tried to present this to mainstream universities, uh, to other academics, he has been ridiculed and ignored. Uh, for decades, for dececades and decades. So possibly, I mean, well, I mean, this is a question though. Is it that this guy, even though he's eccentric, is he essentially a very highly focused genius who has somehow unraveled this incredible human mystery? Is he some kind of idiot savant? Or is he he just (laughs) simply an idiot? And I I don't know, but I I have to say the arguments that he's put forward that were quite, um, they're scattered across very different sources makes me go, maybe he's onto something. And in the light of the work of uh, people like, you know, Philip Coppins and Graham Hancock, you know, and others in the industry, it suggests that there were significantly advanced ancient cultures that had been here all throughout the, the, the planet, not just Australia. And funnily enough, what he describes, you know, essentially is similar to some of the stuff that uh, Evan and Stephen Strong have described. Although Evan and Stephen Strong kind of focused directly on the, the Native Australian people having some type of contact with star people, Rex Gilroy has just added an extra step, really. Mm. He's kind of just added that there was this advanced ancient seafaring civilization known as the Uru um, that I don't understand. I don't understand if he's suggesting that they were seeded with knowledge from some interdimensional or extraterrestrial species or if that uh, they evolved by themselves. And I don't know what's happened to them as well. That's the other question. What happened to them? 
So we'll get to some of those Aboriginals ate them. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe. I mean, who? this is what a lot of cultures do to each other. When one uh, other culture shows up, uh, who knows? So, but what he points out in another article, you know, called The Lost Civilization of Australia, he says that um, there's this, if you look throughout, throughout history and throughout traditional and oral uh, histories, you find that there's many references to this lost civilization that existed somewhere near Australia. Uh, some of them have described there because there was a land bridge, as I pointed out, and there was another land possible island. There was a land mass somewhere there that's described in Chinese uh, records, you know, ancient Chinese records that suggest there was a land mass somewhere between Papua New Guinea and Australia. Uh, and this land mass may have actually held, um, it, it, well, obviously it went underwater as the land bridge did in, this, in the last you know, ice age. Um, but you find that the Maoris, you know, they described themselves coming from a mysterious race. Um, the Chinese called it the Lokak, which was this land to the south. And apparently Rex says that this has been verified on ancient maps dating back 2,500 years. Um, the Aboriginal inhabitants described these people, these Uru, as being expert astronomers. And they weren't primitive. They had uh, sophisticated understandings of astronomy and agriculture, and the Aborigines worshipped them as culture heroes. And in some ancient legends, these culture heroes came to Australia from across the sea in great vessels. Now, this is where it becomes a little bit confusing, because in some of his writings, like The Mystery White Race That Rules the Pacific, which was published, I think, in 2013, uh, he describes, that, as I said earlier, that this race was already here, when the Aboriginal, the, uh, the um, ancestors of the Aboriginals arrived here in Australia. But then the Aboriginal stories talk about the culture heroes, which said that they travelled the sea in these great vessels. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you actually find that the Uru were this light-skinned race that travelled all about this region of the world. They travelled into Papua New Guinea. They travelled into New Zealand. Um, they travelled into all the islands that are around this area, and they left, including Easter Island, and they left stone monoliths that indicated that they were there. So a, a worldwide culture that were stone builders that yeah, had access to the entire world and left their mark. I yes. mean, this they, he's not the only person that's been saying this. I mean, we've covered multiple authors who say there's enough evidence to conclusively suggest this, that there was some world culture much, much, much older than much we understand older. today. Exactly. And uh, he says, look, you know, based upon uh, ancient relics, finds, customs and beliefs of the present day New Guinea people, um, there are suggestions that there was a super civilization that actually had an enclave in Papua New Guinea that uh, has certain features that were consistent with that was what was reported by the Aboriginals, by the Melanesians, by the Chinese. And they came from this submerged island, which was towards the north of Australia. But then there's other mysterious ruins that have been found throughout Australia. Some um, are speculated apparently to exist near Alice Springs, and they consist of uh, four terraces that are up to 40 feet tall, so almost like a pyramid of some kind. Apparently, there are submerged ruins uh, near Port Moresby. One of the ones that really stands out is that in the New England district of northern New South Wales, there appears to be two sets of human footprints that have been found preserved in the mudstone. Like Obviously, it's now hardened stone. These have been dated by modern archaeologists to be 25,000 years old. But guess what? One of the sets of prints is clearly a barefoot child. The second is an adult wearing sandals. Mm. 25,000 years ago, it was unlikely that there were you know, sandals 
25,000 years ago in Native Australian culture. Yeah, you need a certain level of civilization That's right. to produce sandals. So who was the culture that existed in Australia 25,000 years ago that were advanced enough to create sandals? Uh, he says in the Northern Territory, there is a site where statues made from sandstone have been found. They're four feet high. Um, they've been recovered by archaeologists near engravings and rock shelter paintings of non of a non-Aboriginal culture. And carbon dating samples suggest that they have come from around 20,000 to 25,000 years ago. But these things have been covered up. According to Rex Gilroy, they have been hidden. They have been ridiculed. Uh, and I don't know why. I don't know if it's to do with, um, is it money? Is it money? Is it because of, uh, you know, funding, grants, those kind of things? Uh, it's going to cause too much trouble, too much difficulty if we have to rewrite history books. I don't know why this is being ignored. Uh, perhaps the evidence isn't compelling enough. Maybe it's just too far back that it doesn't provide us with enough proof to show us that our history is something that we we don't really understand. He says also that there's many stone and earthen pyramidal structures that have been found scattered all throughout Queensland. And oddly enough, if you map them, they're arranged in a definite alignment. These pyramids were built for astronomical reasons, but for what reason, we don't know. And then we get to Gosford, right? And Gosford must elicit a response because Gosford has the alleged Gosford glyphs. These proto-Egyptian glyphs that have been found in a remote location uh, this, the location of which is not known to many people. And some people have suggested, well, it was like a 1980s university student thing. Um, but Rex Gilroy a and forgery. other people... Saying yeah, it's a forgery. forgery. Yeah, while well, others have said, well, look, there's a history of there being strange, large stone uh, structures, uh, circular raised earthen mounds in this region uh, that have been fashioned out. In fact, there was one place that had central stones that had been hollowed out in a saucer fashion in which water was poured into it. And the ancient astronomers would use it, the reflection, to monitor the movements of stars at night. It was an ancient, advanced technology, but today it's covered with trees. So you can't find it. So you can't actually report it. So I don't know if that means he's seen it or if he's just received this from, you know, other stories. He says, situated at another steep site in the forest just west of Gosford is a remarkable door-like structure. This structure is constructed of two upright stone pillars and their purpose is not some ceremonial existence. It's something else that remains a mystery. But what is the purpose? Then he says there's been a number of, in the same region, highly polished stone axes and um, other instruments that have been dug up over the recent years. The artifacts are unlikely to be that of the Aboriginal culture because the Aboriginal culture tools that have also been found in this region tend to be of a more primitive construction. So he also says in Dapto, which is just north of Wollongong, Wollongong, that there was a Stonehenge there. There was like some... A uh, large structure of 12 huge boulder, boulders that were arranged in a circle, but sadly they were blown up and bulldozed by a construction company and turned the site into a park. He believes that this site was also built for ancient astronomical purposes. So, w- what is happening? How, I mean, is it just simply stones? Why would the government allow this place to be bulldozed and, and torn apart? Is it because they're just not recognising the significance of this site or is there more to it? Well, it could be that Rex or whoever finds this stuff tries to get it acknowledged by professionals and they just don't. That's probably For the reasons you stated earlier, perhaps it's not conclusive enough. Perhaps they don't want to entertain the fact because it doesn't fit into our understanding of history. Yeah, it doesn't fit into the modern narrative and it might upset the apple cart. Um, there's, there's a good example in uh, Von Daniken's latest book. 
I just saw it today. I don't know if it's new, but it's maybe it's got a reissue. It's called Evolution is Wrong. So he, he goes through a lot of the out-of-place artifacts and evidence of humans in ancient times. He mentions the, one of the famous ones from Wilbur Burroughs back in November of 1938. He was this geologist in t- Kentucky, and uh, he claimed that he and some colleagues had found traces of footprints mm-hmm. on this um, sandy beach with basically uh, what was a petrified yes, sandy yeah. beach. And he said the footprints, they're on this horizontal surface, imprinted into this hard, massive gray sandstone, three pairs of footprints showing left and right footprints. Each footprint has five toes and a pronounced bulge. Now, the problem was that the site of the footprints is in a rock layer that is from the uh, upper Carboniferous period. So we're looking at 320 million years old. Wow. So obviously... very different to 300,000 years. Yes. So... The, one of the local ethnologists said, okay, well, this these must have been carved by a Native American tribe. Like, there's no way the, these are real footprints from human. They, they're, they're pieces of art. Someone, for whatever reason, has carved footprints, even though Native Americans don't necessarily carve footprints. Yeah. But maybe here, they decided to carve footprints. So they examined the prints with, you know, microscopes and as close as they could. And they found that there was grains of sand between the toes and on the heels that were more tightly packed than the grains next to the feet, which suggested that 300 million years ago, those grains of sand were actually pushed down by... The pressure was applied. Pressure, like someone standing on them. So it demonstrated it wasn't artificial, it wasn't carved by someone. But the entire specialist group of uh, anthropologists still declared that the prints were... Um, forgeries. Oh. And the reason they did this is because, as we know, it's undisputable fact. It's impossible. No human beings, no you know bipeds like that existed in the Carboniferous Age 300 plus million years ago. So maybe in the case of strange things that have been found in, in Australia, it's the same situation where you have experts examine it and they might find that, oh, it's interesting, but it doesn't, it fit, doesn't fit into our understanding. Therefore, Look, it's a forgery. We've honestly, and you can make a McDonald's. And yeah, it's great. Everyone uh, enjoys it. That, that's the thing. I mean, I hate to, to be so crude, but we really have got it asked backwards. Like, it really needs to be that you don't have this narrative of what history is, and then when you find things, you fit those into the narrative of history. What it really should be is anything that's found forms that narrative. But it is still the Rex Gilroy factor that, <laughs> that you can't ignore. And perhaps those experts had a well, quick well, chat with Rex, <laughs> and then they realised... The odds of this well, being real are <clears> slim <throat> to zero. Yes. Uh, and this is where, and I, I will go into it in a moment, because, I mean, it was important to point out, like, the doorway, that, you know, as I just mentioned there, it's like the doorway might actually be something else. It might be a gateway to another realm. And that's uh, why we love Rex. We just start, go straight to full schizo. Yep. We have the uh, Roger Rabbit equivalent <laughs> of a cartoon <laughs> aliens smacking into Earth. Uh, oh, I can't wait to get to that. Many story. years ago and being t- turned into a plaster cast uh, with uh, surprising appendages showing up. So yes, there are elements that you can go, okay, well, maybe this guy is uh, a little bit out there. So look, uh, a few more comments that I will make though, just to kind of set the scene for this though, is that according to Rex, you know, in one of the articles that he published, again, this is the mystery white race that rules the Pacific. He says the Uru must have settled a land shelf that adjoined um, Australia into New Zealand. And it kind of built an extension of their megalithic civilization. And that's why you have these stories like the Maori referring to the Uru 
of these these great megalithic cities and settlements that they established throughout the mountains and the forelands of New Zealand. They also have like depictions of giant animals, which were megafauna. So it suggests that they were around the time of megafauna. So a very, very old race indeed. Um, in Easter Island, apparently Easter Island is rich in Uru-sounding names. And it's likely that Uru migrants spent time here while they were en route to the Americas, where they introduced their stone-building techniques, which then were later refined by South American cultures. So uh, he says there's an old Easter Island legend that says that this first race, and this is where we understand where now the, the Uru have come from, they were survivors of the first race on our planet, the first culture. They were described as fair-skinned gods. These gods was said to come from the center of the world, a great land of sun situated in the west. They traveled out across the great oceans. Uh, and this is where you can kind of go, okay, so it, again, it's tying in with a little bit the ideas of, that are being put forward by Evan Stephen Strong. Um, he even says that there's some very early myths of the Incas concerning their origin. And in some of their stories, they talk about this sun emerging from this large land and this sacred red rock. The sacred red rock seems to link to Uluru, which translates to people of Uru, he says. So it's like this culture actually had traveled far enough from the Australian continent so far ago, like so far back, that it spread into cultures all throughout the world. So is he suggesting that the this ancient race of stone builders that essentially left their mark on the entire globe. Listen to this. Came from Australia. Yes, he's, this is exactly And they were he, possibly giant hairy Bigfoot. Well, well, I haven't got there yet, but he does say, uh, the Uru were a crude monument-building race. They were in Australia, but in the course of time and their oceanic migrations, they settled on islands all throughout Southeast Asia and Pacific. They improved their artworks to a high degree and mastered the dressing of stones, leaving behind many megaliths and wonders upon lonely islands. And that's why you can find this, uh, these structures apparently all scattered through these islands and then all the way into Peru. So this is kind of like a, a really amazing idea that essentially humanity, this first race originated in Australia from this great sun land and then traveled throughout the world, spreading their knowledge and spreading their abilities, which influenced all these other Stone Age cultures, which then kind of incorporated them into their beliefs. Now, even saying that as the first race still doesn't encapture all of history, though. Like, if you look at the Sumerian kings list that's in the British Museum, they have 10 ancient kings that ruled 456,000 years before the Great Flood. You've got the, the Mayan tablets that talk about, uh, you know, their gods appearing, and they, they precisely date this. Like, there's a god that appeared on July the 29th, 931,449 BC. Okay, so <laughs> like, that, but that's funny because that kind of fits in with where Rex's um, theories have come because he goes 300,000 to a million years. So it kind, Oh, really? Yeah, so it kind of fits in. Well, the furthest back the mines go is 1.2 million years. So they've got a, um, okay. a boy king named Pakal. Yeah, right. Well, look, the whole point about this is this is not to say that obviously every single theory that Rex has is accurate. 
Uh, but at least he's opening the conversation. At least he's looking at the possibilities. And it's not just here in Australia. It, and you make a really great point, Ben. There are multiple references uh, throughout antiquity of there being this advanced ancient race. And whether or not they're gods or, or what they are, or where they've come from, that's all open to you know a huge amount of speculation. But it's really important, I think, that we start to address this. We shouldn't just have this very much you know, closed off and restricted understanding of where humanity has originated from, because I think it actually holds great promise for us. Because if we go and realize that history is much older than we realize, I think it, from a modern perspective, starts breaking down some of these terrible walls that humanity has at the moment about breaking ourselves into different races and different cultures. And and it's just so much cooler that it would be that much older. Of course it is. It's so much cooler. Of course it is. <laughs> so look, then we get into the prophecy of the beings of light. And this is where I, I will put the photographs of this in the show notes so you can see it for yourself. And I'll reference back to, to Rex's website. Um, let, let me just explain this, right? So he says, there is little doubt in my mind that Uru and also the Australian Aboriginal tribes, which they shared the Blue Mountains, had more than one contact with advanced beings from a super civilization that came from somewhere else in our universe. And he says, near Katoomba in recent years, and this was published in 2011, I have made uh, contact with a number of megalithic stone arrangements, and these stones were uh, erected on a north-south axis about 45 metres in length. These iron stone slabs uh, had an alignment that was along the ridge of this mountain, but it's now covered in trees and shrubbery. But obviously a very, very long time ago, this would have all been exposed to the sky. So does that tie in with this civilization that seemed to be uh, astronomers for some reason? They had a very important connection with this. But he says, engraved on the south face of these stones are dozens of letterings, numerical symbols, uh, humans and other images, and some type of Uranian script that was used around 8,000 to 4,000 years BP. Uranian. So he's... he's uh, the Uru. The Uru people. Yeah. He's already given it that kind of name, the so Uranians. I don't know where he found the Rosetta Stone for this, but he says it has taken me 28 years to finally crack the translation of the <laughs> Uru script. So and he's although- cracked a million-year-old language. <laughs> Good old Rex. Eating his wife's sandwiches every Tuesday afternoon and just... <laughs> A couple of hours trying to crack a million-year-old ancient script that's different to any other. It's like a proto-proto language, and Rex cracks it. it. It gets better. And I must say, I'm glad you mentioned the sandwiches, because through the anecdotes, it seems like sandwiches do come up a bit. I'm like, it's very cute. Yeah, one day his wife, we, we went to see a Rex chat, one of his talks that went for about two hours and his wife made him these delicious looking sandwiches. We just thought it was so cute and adorable because they're, you know, they're kind of the elderly. His wife comes up with these perfectly wrapped little sandwiches and Rex gobbles them up. It was just adorable. So we always remembered yeah. the, how delicious his wife's sandwiches looked. I'm like There was one guy describing some encounter with some weird glowing bee. He's like, I dropped my sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to this script for a second, right? So, uh, yes, it's taken him 28 years to crack the translation of this Uru script. Uh, And my research, he says, is far from complete. But for the past several years, I've been finally able to read the sometimes lengthy rock inscriptions that were left by the people. He calls them the Katoomba Stell. And uh, so, essentially, it describes a few things. First of all, that there was a civilization um, that made contact with beings from beyond the Earth. And they came from the planet... Mahala, where 9 million people live, and it's the uh, in the abode, apparently, of two moons. Uh, apparently, the script describes the beings of light, 
and that it lies 300 time periods from our planet. Now, what that time period is, no one really knows. Um, but the Mahalans apparently were the super civilization that were possibly employing Windows in time technology, and that's where it starts to go, oh, okay, right, to visit Earth or other planets for that matter. Where is this from again? So this is from his publication, The Prophecy of the Beings of Light, that he published in 2011, right? So have a look in the show notes right now because I'll show you these um, petroglyphs, I suppose you could call them, or hieroglyphics that he's found on these stones, right? And look, he goes through this, this article is very long and kind of drawn out and yada, yada, yada. But essentially he says, look, the true identity of the Mahala may seem obvious to many ufologists. The planet Mars possesses two satellite moons. And also that 300 time thing, that would suggest that is the planet Mars. The ancient advanced civilization that came to Earth and seemed to influence this Homo erectus group, this Homo erectus species, was Martians. Well, look, as absurd as it sounds, and, and obviously it's very wild, and this is where, because Rex, I think why Rex is not taken seriously by mainstream academics and researchers is because a lot of his research does start crossing into these areas. And when you mention things like time window technology, uh, it starts becoming a little bit, you know, Basiago-esque. It's kind of got that, you know, Andrew Basiago time travel kind of idea to it. So that's where people, you know, will immediately dismiss it. But, you know, there's a few little anecdotal pieces there where you go, you know, maybe he's onto something. So, for example, published in his uh, newsletter of the Blue Mountains UFO Research Club in June of 2011, he talks about some of the, the Dreamtime stories that come from the Native Australians. And there's a group of mountains here uh, in Queensland called the Glasshouse Mountains. And they were called that because when Captain Cook, I believe, first came to Australia and saw these things, these mountains, they're, like, they're just illustrious and beautiful. But because of the dew upon them, when he saw them in the early morning, they seemed to look like glass. And that's hence why they were called the Glasshouse Mountains. And it's a beautiful part of Australia. But there might be something more to it. There's this one particular m mountain or this kind of volcanic plug that almost looks like a monolith. Like it doesn't, I mean, yes, obviously it's a mountain, but it looks like it's something else. Like you could probably, and Rex suggests that through the, the Aboriginal legends, that this thing rises high up on this otherwise flat coastal landscape. Now, when you take a look at it, particularly at the eastern side, it starts resembling something that is like a gigantuan ape-like being. What? Squatting with its right arm dropping down to the inside of the right leg, its left arm resting upon a rock, and really, once you see it, it's unmistakable. Does he say which specific mountain it is? Because isn't there several? Yeah. Isn't the Glasshouse Mountains it's, a range? Uh, Ragagan. Tibaragar, yeah. what? Yeah, so <laughs> look, he says, allowing for, I'm sorry if I butchered that pronunciation, but he says, allowing for ages of weathering, it could be argued that the eyes, nose, and mouth were once deliberately carved out in a Mount Rushmore-style operation by intelligent beings possessing a super-civilization technology. I believe that these beings were what the Uru called the Mahalans, i.e. the Martians. And according to the Aborig Aborigines of the region, this particular rock has got these uh, traditions about it that it was once a giant ape man that roamed the landscape but later turned to stone. Okay, I wasn't going to jump to any conclusions and say that this is insane because it actually does look like King Kong kneeling down. Does it really? It does. Okay, I'll put that it in the It looks show like notes. King Kong. This is the King Kong mountain in Australia. Okay. 
Okay, listen to this next from one. From a certain angle, and yeah, it's a lot. He says that, though. He says, from a certain angle and from the right light. But guess what it lines up with? The face on Mars. <laughs> it has the same kind of you know structure to it, but obviously this is very much open to you know wild speculation and, and interpretation. But maybe that's this is what's happened. They they created this ape-like face on on Mars, and they've done exactly the same thing here on Earth. They were stone builders. They were a stone building civilization. And Rex- so it's kind of like a Mount Rushmore thing, but it's a it's a Bigfoot face. Yeah. It's an ape face. It's an ape face. Yeah, well, it's an ape... This, again, just got, plays into the whole theory that the ancient builders were a species of large, hairy Bigfoot who were travelling the world trying to leave their knowledge behind. <laughs> Has there been a, a giant monument found of a, a jar of peanut butter or something like that? Yeah, those giant tools that they found. One was a can opener. Yeah. You know, one was a big spoon for peanut butter. So uh, Rex also points out that according to Central Australian Aborigines, and as you know, there are many, many different tribes, there happens to exist an underground city whose secret entrances lies in a remote area. This city is deep below the earth, and they claim that it has been hidden for untold thousands of years. The tribesmen claim it contained airships and beings that are preserved in mummy-like fashions that are awaiting rejuvenation at some future date. What tribe is saying this? Where is he getting this from? What Aboriginals have that law? He said a central Aboriginal tribe. It doesn't say anything He doesn't else. name no. them. He doesn't and say look, who they are. And look, this is Come where... Come on, Rex. If you go back to uh, an article that was published in Psychic Australia back in January of 1978, this is where this stuff all crosses into the more, you know, out there, crazy ufological side of, of Rex's research. And he says that, look, you know, there's a, about 600 reports also from the 1970s of there being uh, strange lights, strange craft, strange vehicles that are flying around the, particularly the, the Blue Mountains area. And the reason for that possibly is, is that there is some type of hidden base that is under the Blue Mountains. Now, this base might be connected to the military of some kind. Um, he goes so far as to speculate because he says he points out these anecdotal stories of campers being in this region, coming across uh, chain link or cyclone fences and not being able to go ahead, uh, seeing military operations taking place. But there is a history of very strange and unexplained phenomena occurring in this region. Take, for example, Mr. Weston, who in 1971 penetrated some of the most inaccessible regions of the Blue Mountains and was camping there. While he was camping not too far south of the Warragamba Dam, he said that he was woken from his sleep by a loud humming noise. He got up to his feet and started off with his torch in hand into the bush looking for the source of this strange sound hoping to find something, hoping to find what the cause was. He said he soon became aware that ahead of him in the scrub was a lit up glowing white light. It was just sitting in this clearing. As he approached the clearing, he said he could see through the trees that the glow was coming from a strange structure that was somewhat egg-shaped. There were dark man-like figures that were moving hastily around the craft. Now, this Mr. Weston was concerned as to, you know, seeing something like this. It's the 1970s and what activities taking going on that he got out of there. And he remained awake all night, you know, being concerned about what this is and then left. But more of these stories started coming forward that the military had helicopters buzzing this area. Um, There was one wild story that I read where Rex says that a camper was in this region, very similar, somewhere in the Blue Mountains. He saw a typical saucer-shaped craft go flying overhead, like as he's deep in this Blue Mountains. And this is like the Blue Mountains is a 
isolated. Uh, it's got a very, it's a very beautiful area, but the, it's just f- dense. Like it's dense bushland and it's very easily to get lost in there. And this guy reports that he saw, he claims, a camouflage style saucer shaped UFO craft with a US Air Force insignia on the bottom of it fly over the top of him before it disappeared off into the wilderness. 100% real. So, I mean... Don't doubt it for a second. Going back into the 1970s... It had still, camouflage on it. Well, that's the... If it had camouflage. Like, why are they painting it with camouflage? <laughs> if, it camu- if it had camouflage on it... So, uh, north of the Warragamba... Because that's why you, you need to always camouflage your uh, flying saucers. <laughs> yeah. Right, Just yeah. in case, because, you yeah. know, well, people see in them in the jungle. The, closing, the cloaking technology fails on them. Um, look, the reason why I mentioned the, the Warragamba Dam story, though, because there's lots of them, though. There was another story from the early 1970s about a farmhand that was out looking for some cattle that had strayed from this very region where the guy previously had seen an egg-shaped craft land. Now, he said that he saw, like, he came into another clearing where there was this circular burnt-out patch of timber, and there was some sort of heavy object that had left a depression in the ground. There was a strange smell about the place that he could not identify much like last week when we were talking about the beings and the ammonia kind of sulfur smell. I wonder if that's exactly the same kind of thing. He said this smell hung around and stuck to his clothing. The farmhand didn't know what was going on, but he felt uncomfortable in this location and no trace of the cattle was ever found. They just upped and disappeared. But the kicker to this story is not only did he find this you know, area that some large craft had been, something large and heavy had been to leave indentations in the ground, the hoof prints what he did find of those of those cows ended abruptly and scattered. So it's suggested that they were plucked up, they got wrecked up by something. So yeah, I mean, there's there's cattle mutilation stories from the 1970s that go through the Blue Mountains area, and there's lots of them. There's stories about the Aboriginal people describing being abducted by these things. Keep going, and I'm just going to run out and get my iPad because I was doing some research from um, Puerto Rico earlier in the week that. Put, aligns with this perfectly. I, I found oh. like the Rex Gilroy of Puerto Rico. Just keep going and <laughs> okay. I'll go get my iPad. Okay, all right. So here we go. So the, this comes from uh, 1926. So there are very much uh, early reports as well. This time, though, we move from the Blue Mountains region and we move up into Queensland. And there's a, a mining town known as Mount Isa, kind of in the, the central area of Queensland, where uh, apparently Aboriginal people had described encountering... UFO-shaped craft. They didn't know exactly what they were. It was 1926. They didn't know how to describe what it was. But they said that they'd seen a big black object come down from the sky and uh, emerging from it were pygmy-height beings that rounded up 20 or 30 tribes, people, and children and herded them into the craft. The little people then took away the children for some reason but returned them later. This craft then rose into the air and flew away somewhere beyond the clouds is the term that was used. And the details are hazy, but then the craft returned with its captives a day later and then dumped them off. It's like, what is going on? They're abducting Aboriginal tribes people? Um, there's also an early case that came from the early 1900s. So in 2008, Rex says he received a phone call from a Narell Cable of Brisbane. She was formerly of Rockhampton. And she described the story of her great-grandfather, Andy Dixon. So Andy Dixon was this part Aboriginal man. Uh, apparently he had been out one day fixing a fence in a remote region in this patch of trees when he said this big grey-coloured flying machine 
appeared over his head. 1900, right? So very much before any of the modern ufological stories. And I don't think in uh, up in Queensland in the 1900s that popular culture of UFOs had somehow penetrated through. He says his horse and mule that were carrying equipment ran off and this great machine flew to a high point above him and descended to envelop him amongst a great circular hollow. He found himself in momentary darkness where he was enveloped by some type of strange bright light and this silver scintillating effect was above him. Then suddenly there were three figures that appeared that were all strangely dressed. A door opened beside him on this machine and he was pushed into a circular room. He was set upon by several of these men who were blue skinned. They removed his clothes and he was petrified. They probed him with incomprehensible machines that were placed around the room and strapped him to a metal table where they touched him with handheld objects. Once they finished doing what they were doing, uh, they released him. He quickly dressed. And then one of the blue-skinned men opened a hatch of the hovering craft and told him to get out or tried to, to push him out, right? He said that as this craft descended and he was about to get out, he looked over to see a strange red-colored metallic instrument on a table. He grabbed it and jumped from the UFO, <laughs> fleeing with the instrument. <laughs> he was pursued by the craft where three strange men emerged and gave chase as well. They grabbed him, took the instrument from him, returned to the craft, and then rose up into the trees and disappeared, leaving a frightened Andy to look on in terror. That's so ballsy to steal something from a UFO. But that's the only proof he would have. Like, he's got proof. He was taken. These things hunted him down and got him. So what did you find on your iPad there? This is from Timothy Good's Alien Update, which was an old paperback. I think it's from the late 80s. But there's it's it's not his work. He's just included mm. uh, essays and reports from different researchers. And the opening one's this amazing one from Jorge Martin, who was Puerto Rico's leading investigator. He used to be the editor of Enigma magazine. And he talks about this earthquake that was uh, on May, May the 31st, 1987. It was about 1.55 in the afternoon. This is in Southwest Puerto Rico. And thousands of people heard this huge explosion and they felt tremors, like people's windows were broken, houses were shaking. And the press initially reported that the earthquake came from this the center of this uh, wildlife refuge which, oh. which wasn't like a it wasn't like a federal refuge back then but it's called Laguna Cartagena and it's like a huge it's like a huge water lagoon it's like a thousand acres just you know bird sanctuary wildlife place and that's where they said the this earthquake had come from but the next day, all the, the, you know, the government body or wherever released the, the information and the authorities and the press changed mm. the story. They said, oh, no, the earthquake came from miles out to sea and we just felt it. And people were like, oh, that's weird because we, you know, heard the explosion from the lagoon. And so Jorge Martin was on the ground and he went to these villages in the area that were right next to where this lagoon was, this wildlife area, and they started interviewing eyewitnesses. And they found dozens of people, hundreds of people saw what happened before and after. But they found eyewitnesses who saw this strange craft come that morning, or I think it was the night before, and basically drop a giant red glowing ball into the lagoon. (laughs) Yeah, like into the lagoon. And they said it was on the end of like a string or something. And dozens of people he interviewed saw this. They all had the same description where it kind of came down on a lure and then they dropped this glowing ball and just went into the water. And the most bizarre part of the story is apparently 
the next day, more eyewitnesses saw a different type of craft that looked like it was searching for something. Oh, weird. Like it was going like over the lake it. and scanning, scanning a, a light or something? in there trying to, f- like they all said it, it was obviously trying to find something and then it just disappeared. And then, and then it was soon after that, you know, one fifty-five pm in the afternoon, that this explosion went off and this earthquake was registered, right? So then he speaks to more people and people saw other craft, like there's a image here of, it's like a cigar-shaped craft with, with two glowing, two ball glowing balls on either side. And uh, he finds eyewitnesses who uh, show him these giant impressions in the grass. He finds an eyewitness who was partying out late with his friends a few nights before this explosion. He said he, uh, for some reason, you know, they must have been drinking. He jumped on his motorbike at like three in the morning and he uh, rode past this this area and found three saucers just kind of landed you know, with the impressions in the ground, just sitting there, um, you know, kind of with this strange glow. Yeah. Um, and eventually he spoke to locals who have lived in the area for, you know, like a hundred years and actually own land that's connected to this lagoon. And they're like, oh no, we've been seeing those discs since 19, 1956. Oh, weird. And, you know, they, yeah, come, they come out of the lagoon. There was... Um, one guy who had passed away by the time Martin and his colleagues got to interview the family, but it was the eyewitness's brother, I think. And she said, oh, we never believed his stories. But now that, you know, all this, we've seen these sort craft ourselves. Now we suddenly believe his stories. So Martin's like, well, what was he saying? What was your brother saying? Apparently this guy claimed that he was seeing craft come out of the lagoon waters, like disc shaped craft and he would yell at them because, you know, is he, he's by himself. He doesn't know what they are and they'd fly over him. And he'd, he'd, he started yelling at them because he just he didn't know what they were. And he said after he started yelling at them, they started to stop. And Oh, where do I have that? They actually going. stopped and hovered over him. And he said, this is what he told his sister and the family. They never believed him. He claimed that there were beings that he could see in the domes on top of the craft. And so this continued a couple of times until eventually he told his his sister that um, one night, we've heard this story a thousand times, he got this compulsion to get up and get dressed and drive down to the lagoon. So he did this. He gets in his Jeep and he drives down there and he claims that two seven-foot-tall humans with long blonde hair and very fair white skin walk out of the water and they're wearing skin-tight like blue suits. They're basically like hot Pleiadians, right? Walk out of this lagoon. And he got so scared that they kind of sensed his fear and just smiled at him and walked back into the water like a bunch of weirdos walking so, into the water. It's funny that you should mention that because there are a lot of parallels in the anecdotal reports of what people are describing from here in Australia. And they they are very similar. It's like, um, I won't go into it today, but there's a lot of stuff surrounding the Gympie Triangle. And there's this idea that um, this base that was underneath, I shouldn't call it the, the Gympie Triangle, the Gympie Pyramid, right? And so the Gympie Pyramid is this site which has now been redeveloped. But I think when we last discussed the Gympie Pyramid, the idea was that, well, the suggestion was that it was put in there by Italian immigrants yeah, yeah. and they were growing wine in it. And Rex says, well, no, that's not the case. Like it, It's far, far older. It's part of an ancient race, an ancient race or an ancient civilization that had created this thing for other purposes. But 
it was because it extended into uh, a waterway that would have gone out into Tin Can Bay. Now, Tin Can Bay has got a lot of activity surrounding it, but there are rumors that it is some type of uh, entryway yeah. to UFOs because people have reported oh. seeing UFOs splashing down and coming out of this area. Well, it was just interesting with this story from Martin in Puerto Rico because it... it it, it was fascinating how it changed because the the early eyewitnesses from the 50s and 60s onwards reported seeing a particular type of craft, a very traditional, shiny kind of silver disc. They report seeing uh, strange men wearing, um, you know, like skin-tight clothing, but they're, they're Nordic-looking. They've got white skin and they've got yeah. long blonde hair. But after this earthquake happened in 1987 or whenever it was... Um, People started reported reporting seeing little grey guys. Like he's got a whole oh. bunch of sightings where it's you know there's a woman who uh, hears some strange rustling outside of her veranda and she goes to the window and she pulls down the blinds and there's two little greys mumbling to each other uh, in front of one of her cactus plants. Oh, and it's like they it's like they're fascinated with the plant. <laughs> she just gets frozen and watches them. They they kind of completely consumed by this house plant. Like they don't know what it is. And there's a bunch of, of uh, typical sightings of greys and there's abduction stories. But it seems like there was a certain point where people were seeing these, again, these human-looking, long, blonde hair, very attractive-looking, tall individuals. And then the the sightings completely change to these grey aliens. And then you think about the idea of one object Dropping, dropping this red off. glowing ball and there's a hu- huge explosion and then another craft is coming to look for it. It's like, did they did they kick him out? Did the greys come and drop a bomb on <laughs> on the, the Nordic guys and kick them out? <laughs> that's what I maybe. think happened. And that's the thing, right? So if we go, we're going to speculate, maybe there are warring races. And this is why you've got, you know, one depiction of a certain race and a whole heap of reports of people saying, yeah. I interacted with these beings. And then all of a sudden it changes. And, and so we had that great story of the Virginia case uh, last week with James Fox on the show. And he was talking about these Americans showing up immediately. The same thing happened in Puerto Rico, although, you know, Puerto Rico is connected to America. But they these... Uh, American personnel immediately show up. Um, the locals said after this earthquake in 1987, there were a, a bunch of men in the area who had perfect black business suits on. Uh, they all had blonde hair and fair skin, and they were all carrying silver suitcases, but they had weird rubber boots on. And, oh, so it just didn't seem and it was just everything right about it was, was weird. And after this, you know, this is a long detailed whole saga that was over a year. But after this, they ended up pulling some, like the government pulled some shenanigans on the region and got it declared a protected area. And this family of witnesses had their property purchased from them by the government. And it's now considered a wildlife refuge. It wasn't before. All of a sudden it was, it was under the jurisdiction of the, like the fisheries department of the federal government. Black Ops Um, Fisheries. And they did this to a similar area, which was close by, where they ended up building a massive kind of radar installation that they claimed was being used to uh, monitor drug trafficking in the area. But then Martin ended up finding a bunch of eyewitnesses who claimed that there's constantly UFOs um, coming in and out of this region, hovering over this area. This they, is exactly the same in the Blue Mountains. They, yeah, they found one guy who said his brother was obsessed with this place. And his brother always used to climb the mountain and investigate, even though he wasn't supposed to. 
and his brother told him that he found a hidden air vent. It was like an enclosed, it was covered in bushes. It was like camouflage. It was spray painted to look like, you know, the brush around it. You mean like to an underground base? And he climbed in there. This is the story. He climbed in there and he claims that he saw um, multiple uh, like craft lined up. It was like a hangar. Like he went inside a hangar basically. And when there was you were strange, craft. strange craft in there. But he also said there were, there were aliens there. And he claims that there was um, American military personnel yes. down there as well. Yeah. So, well, you might ask, well, why is Jorge Martin talking to this guy's brother? Well, it turns out after this guy told his brother that he saw this, uh, he hanged himself. Oh, he got suicide, yeah. suicided three days later. And the entire family was like, there's no way he would do this. He was a happy person. This is absolutely not in his character. This is so strange. Um, and then finally, there's a story of a guy who um, claims he was taken aboard uh, by one of these, one of these craft, by these entities. And he describes them like this viewing screen in the craft and they're heading towards one of the mountains. Yes. And this hole just opens up and he says, they just go through this tunnel and all of a sudden he's in this cavernous space. So when you mentioned all Rex's wild stories, I thought, oh, this is just like the Puerto Rican stuff I was reading at the start of the week. It's so compelling because the the, the stories are so similar. I mean, everything you've described there, I have an anecdotal case that would be... Exactly the same. People describing seeing strange UFOs, uh, classic saucer-shaped craft that are flying around in this region. But then there's other depictions of triangular-shaped mm. craft. But they're described, one of them is like it's smacked into, it's smacked was the term used. It's smacked into the side of the mountain, but then disappeared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and this is where the whole idea of time windows kind of comes up because Rex in some of his writings at points has said, well, look, there's this time, an, an advanced civilization that has, you know, wants to keep themselves hidden, whether it's an underground base or whatever else, if they use this time window technology, they essentially can camouflage themselves from reality. They can step out of time. It's like they're out of phase. And so they could go about doing what they want to do. They could do a mass operation of launching UFOs over and over and over, and no one would ever see anything because it's completely mm. out of phase with our current reality. Well, the thing that made me want to do it is because it did remind me of James Fox's work with the Brazilian case, mm -hmm. just because there were some really high caliber witnesses. Like he ended up getting uh, two local policemen to go on the record and talk about their experience uh, where this radar did near where this radar dish was installed. They claimed that they were just on a day off, like they were going fishing or something. And uh, they looked up the side of this um, hill and they saw again, like all these um, guys in strange suits not aliens, but they looked like guys in hazmat suits oh. and they were doing something strange. They had like machines with them. They claimed they saw uh, personnel carrying giant rolls of what looked like electrical cable. And they were, um, this was next to the lagoon. They, they were basically feeding it into feeding the, lagoon. the cable into the lagoon. Oh, that's unusual. Um, and they eventually got caught. They said out of nowhere, because they tried to get up the mountain to get a closer look of what was going on. And out of nowhere, they said this black helicopter just kind of hovers oh over my, them. Oh my it's God. And it, and it immediately, go this black helicopter immediately lands. They said uh, Puerto Rican special forces get out and put them on the helicopter, you know, they, without saying a word, just like get on the helicopter. You're not allowed to be here. They get taken to, um, they get taken to what looks like some kind of, I guess, stage like temporary headquarters where there's military tents set up and they're basically um dragged in front of 
an American. There's like an American commander there. This is in their words. And they say that one of the local special forces guys, they're just saying, I don't know if it's special forces. They just say he looked like, you know, special forces. He goes over and, you know, he can see he exchanges words with this, you know, white American, they assume is American commander who looks like he's the guy in charge. And he says, this guy looks pissed that they're there. Like he looks so annoyed that these two guys have been brought to him. He goes up to them with this kind of real screwed up look on his face, says, what are you doing here? They reply, you know, in Spanish that we're on, we're off duty policemen. We, we just saw, we just saw, we haven't seen anything. <laughs> and they said the next thing they know, they're waking up on a dirt road. Oh, that's weird. And they overhear one of these guys that was on the helicopter saying they're waking up, let's go. They hear the helicopter take off and they're like, we must have been drugged or something. He said, the only thing I remember is this American military guy coming towards me and then the next thing I know, I'm on this dirt road. It's just lost memory. I don't know what happened. It's completely blank. Yep. Um, and that's that was it. That's... That's the end of their story. They just went back to their lives. They didn't talk about it much, but they told Jorge Martin. There's there's people that have described very, very similar things to either Rex or Don, where they've described that they've interacted with something very strange. They've seen a UFO-shaped craft. Uh, it's either been... There's been crashes, apparently. I think it was in the 1970s. There was a crash of something uh, that was possibly an ET craft, but then that later on, um, they were... Uh, they conf- were confronted by army men or something in the forest or in the bush. That's right. I remember a Rex Gilroy story where, yeah, the Australian army just pops out of nowhere. Yeah. Oh, there was one where Rex claims that he came across what he thought at first was a group of naval cadets doing something. Mm. And one of the one of them said, oh, we've, we've been on patrol or something. And the other one told him to shut up. It was like he wasn't, the, kept, the, the guy didn't realize that he shouldn't be talking. Um, but there's been multiple people that reported the same thing that there's been, like there was one depiction of someone that they said they were camping in the Blue Mountains region where apparently this massive base is. And when I mean massive, it is a massive underground base that is connected with different underground railroads, uh, possibly with other countries, but certainly all across Australia, uh, according to these reports. But there was one where Apparently, they saw these soldiers just disappear into basically a curtain, like an invisible curtain, and they were gone. Mm. This is Australian soldiers. On the Puerto Rican case, after that tremor, uh, Martin and his colleagues said they just, all these sightings were in the area. Like people saw a bunch of strange craft. They saw um, fighter jets were now being scrambled. There were helicopters seen everywhere. All these incidents started to pile up. And then he said the most extraordinary thing happened. He said on the night of the 28th of December, 1988, two US Navy jet fighters were abducted in midair by a huge triangular shaped UFO, which then disappeared in front of a hundred eyewitnesses. That's incredible. (laughs) And I'm just like, elaborate, please. And he doesn't. He talks about this other book that he's written, which I can't find because it's only on paperback. So I want to go back and see if I can find this Puerto Rican case where a giant black triangle swallows up two Navy jets. (laughs) So you piqued my interest there with describing the the helicopters that appeared. And Rex uh, alleges that he was harassed by black helicopters back in December of 2001. Mm. And what he had done is he'd made his hike out to the far end of the Naraneck Plateau. 
And this is a location that has a lot of strange activity taking place, but it's like this scrubby, scrubby wilderness kind of region in the southwest of Katoomba. And campers that have been you know, staying out here have described hearing loud drilling sounds and blasting coming from underground. Um, there's been mysterious objects flying about, including cubes. So people have seen strange cubes appearing. But he says one day when he was out there by himself, it was 2.22 p.m., and he was in this wild expanse, and he said he heard the sound of a helicopter but he failed to see it anywhere. So he looks around and he sees this small black colored light aircraft that was flying from west to east above this cliff top. Of this cliff top. And as he's watching it, he says, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it reaches this point and then phew, vanishes in thin air. He said it was like a light being switched off. It was all of a sudden. But what was odd is he said he could still hear the engine. It just oh. dematerialized or went invisible, Cloaked. but the engine was still there. Now, he was puzzled by this, right? And he said as he continued to watch, it got to 2.57 p.m. when a large silver disc-like object appeared in the wilderness or in the sky above him. This craft quickly vanished into the gully into dense forest and granite rock formations. So it's like it's not dense forest and granite rock. It must be some type of uh, camouflaged landing site somehow. Mm. But he claims that as he was there, he heard more helicopters appearing. And this helicopter showed up. It had a military man on board, but it was difficult to identify who he was or who he was even with, you know, what agency. Uh, It was circling around and it was a man taking photographs of Rex. Like he opened the door and he was hanging out (laughs) with a camera and was taking photographs. But it was clearly, he said there were eight camouflage uh, colored Australian army helicopters that were flying in formation over this particular site where the previous UFO had disappeared. Well, if you're running a kind of secret uh, government black ops program, the perfect person to stumble on it is Rex because no one's going to believe it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I didn't want to say it, but you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I would, if I was the commander, I'd just be like, oh, it's Rex Gilroy, like invite him in. Yeah, no <laughs> one's going to believe him. Don't worry about that. Yeah, that's going to be fine. Um, okay, so he also says in 1997, he was told of a 1970 report of a former uh, RAAF pilot, so a Royal Australian Air Force pilot, that uh, in 1969, he saw a shining disc-like craft that was hovering over this region. It was moving at great speed before crossing into the Woolamai re- uh, wilderness. Two jets from Williamstown actually pursued this thing. And like what you said, Ben, they fired upon the craft, which then disappeared into thin air. This thing was just just gone, right? In another incident that took place over the same area in June of 1977, there were a number of eyewitnesses that reported a strange gold shining disc-shaped craft that was flying overhead, heading west at around 3pm in the afternoon. Two jets were scrambled from Richmond Air Force Base. As they approached the craft, um, this thing changed direction and then disappeared without a trace in mid-air, leaving the startled pilots dumbfounded. Joe Rogan had the um, F-18 pilot on the other day, um, Ryan Graves. It was earlier this week. I, I listened to about 40 minutes of it, but it was interesting to hear the story again. You know, the guy that was on the uh, Nimitz oh, yeah, yep. carrier group. Mm-hmm. But he was saying when those guys were going up and training for their missions every day, they would just see these objects every day. Yeah, Every yeah, day yeah, they yeah. were just up there. And it's interesting hearing him talk about it because he's describing being just so focused on their training, on their on their mission. And, you know, it's like $30,000 for every hour they're up there in those things. They can't, you Not know, they don't have it. time to investigate these things, but they'll just fly past them every day. And he described them as um, black cubes. Yeah, the cubes again. Black cubes with a um, transparent sphere surrounding them. 
that would do, you know, flight maneuvers or they would stay stationary and yeah, un- it, over 100 mile per hour winds. Yeah, that's what you were telling me, that the, the high wind shear and that they just seem to be unaffected by it. And, you know, it's funny because this is the the hot term now is the UAPs UAP. and the, the navies are, the navies involved with all this and all this information is coming out and it's becoming more and more mainstream. But just a quick reminder, this stuff's been going on for 70 years, for longer than that. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, you re- made a really great point to me today as well. You said, look, this stuff was out in the public domain in the 60s. You had the contactee period. You had the Air Force, you know, with Project Blue Book. You know, the government was, it's exactly the same thing. It's just playing over once again. You've got the people that are in the know, yeah. seemingly guiding the, the release of this information. And for what purpose? I don't know. And, and we definitely live in a world where the truth is obscured. Oh, don't we? Uh, and we, you could almost argue we live in a world where the, the truth that is presented to the general public is an inversion of what's true. Yes. And so why would UFOs be any different? Why in this time especially would any accuracy and any true understanding come forward about UFOs? If anything, what we're presented with and the narrative that forms, like everything else, will be an inversion of what's true. That's right. So when you've got, you know, this uh, now elderly man who has been, you know, spending decades researching this stuff, uh, you know, trying to present these stories... Unfortunately, you know, I think it's going to be a case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. People aren't going to take him seriously because of the absurdity of some of these stories. Um, and so, and it's not just him though. It's a whole wide range of UFO researchers that have gone very, very deep into this stuff. And unfortunately, because it starts to get, uh, I think contaminated is the wrong word, but it, it does act. It's like they get contaminated with the really absurd and out there stories. Yeah, like Rex Gilroy. Like Rex Gilroy. And I think it, uh, unfortunately for them, it, it undermines them. You know, and it's it's really, really hard. And I think it just pushes the truth even further and further out. And to give you a few examples, so I, I just want to finish up this section and kind of give you a nutshell as to well, what's this all about? You know, like what's this whole thing? How does, you know, this ancient civilization link in with underground bases in the Blue Mountains and then weird time window technology and then transplants of reincarnation memories, like all this wild stuff. Let me just explain a few stories to you. First of all, I want to tell you the story of a woman by the name of Ann Taylor. Ann Taylor got in contact with uh, Rex Gilroy back, I believe, in the early 2000s or mid-2000s. But she um, actually has a very strange story to tell. So she claims that when she was at Echo Point in Katoomba, which is a hot spot again for this UFO activity, she had been out there on the night of Monday, the 9th of April, 2000. It was 10.30 p.m. And she saw some strange craft descend from the clouds. It had flown at a 45-degree angle over the Jameson Valley. It was hovering above trees on the western side of the lookout. And she photographed it, right? She took this photograph and it hovered for a moment and then flew off. Now, she later described it as being this round circular craft, about nine meters in diameter, or about 11 meters in height. So a reasonably large craft that she saw. But that was it. Right? The whole thing ended, right? But she said later on when she went home, it was about 12 months after the initial encounter, like nothing had happened. But she was lying in bed one night when all of a sudden she couldn't sleep. She was hit with this wave of acute insomnia. And because she couldn't sleep, she thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll go downstairs and I'll start drawing. This is how she kind of, you know, relaxes. So she's drawing and she's just kind of letting her hand do its thing. And she's got a supply of art pencils before her and she's scribbling away. And she realizes very quickly that she's actually using this light blue pencil to sketch this blue skinned being. 
And as soon as she looks down and it's like, what am I drawing? It's like, bam. And, like, oh, and all this memory started coming back. <laughs> all this incredible memory. So it was like flooding back to her of everything that happened at Echo Point that night she took the photograph. For her, all she initially remembered is she took the photograph and wandered home. But then it all came back. She said that she'd taken the photograph and the flash had gone off and it was almost like the craft had noticed her. It disappeared beneath the clouds and she wandered off. And as she wandered off down the path, she said this small globe dropped out of the bottom of the craft ran down the path, I flew down the path and then started hovering in front of her, just bobbing up and down about five meters before her. And she said she stood there riveted to the spot because it was both alarming and fascinating at the same time. And she was even thinking, this can't be happening. This this can't be real. When all of the bush noises abruptly ceased and everything was deathly quiet, what you hear in uh, time slip encounters quite commonly, or the Oz effect mm. and these sorts of things. She said that this small globe sat there on the path for a few seconds before it dissipated into a mist and a very tall being was standing in front of her. It was an eight-foot-tall, blue, light-skinned being. It looked like it had a grey head, but that's where the similarities ended. It was like a grey Venusian hybrid. It was like this eight-foot-tall, hot grey with long blonde hair and uh, these golden kind of yellow eyes and ridge brow ridges and kind of like this Chad but grey Venusian alien standing before her. And he was wearing this tight-fitting silver grey one-piece garment and his waistline had a belt around it and uh, long sleeves, black boots. And she said it felt like an eternity where she's just looking at this thing and it's looking at her. Now it walks over to her and he points towards the camera and she's like, oh, uh, and he says, what is this? And she says, oh, it's a camera. It's for recording images. And he's like, oh, well, that's why we got you got our attention because we saw a flash coming from the ground. That's how you got our attention. She's like, oh, okay. He then goes to tell her that he's an androgynous 425-year-old being <laughs> and that, uh, you know, kind of warns her about all the issues that are going to happen on Earth and, you know, the typical kind of thing. But basically flooding her with essentially all this garbage information like it was, he said, oh, it's an exchange of information. But afterwards, she said that this thing kind of just left, like it disappeared, it, the mist came back, it disappeared into a ball and disappeared and, and took off. But she said it was like my brain had been picked, it had been like invaded and she was exhausted. It was like this being had telepathically reached into her head and taken something. Now she gets home, right? And she... Kind of because, and this is what she's recalling as she's sketched this thing. When she gets home, she looks at her clock and she realizes that it's actually now half an hour before she'd even left for her walk. So she'd gone through mm. some weird missing time. Missing time. But no, it was more than missing time. That put her back half an hour mm. before. So she'd actually traveled through time. And this is where it ties in with this idea of, you know, um, the time windows that these beings are the ones that are manipulating this stuff, that they're using this technology to for whatever purpose, I don't know what it is, but the fact that she describes like she was drained, this is something that other people have described when interacting with these beings. So I'll probably go into this maybe on the the Plus show, you know, coming up a little bit later on, because I do have, as you can see, Ben, all my, my notes here, there's so many more of these sorts of stories that do cross into the really extreme interactions with ETs. But I just want to mention this one for you, which describes um, the, the, the use of alien implants 
Can you tell the story of the entity that fell out of the UFO on the in the plus extension yes, coming up? Yes, we will do that. On the plus extension, I will go into the uh, the alien that went splat and a cast was made of him. We'll, we'll do that in the plus extension. But there was this one story that came out about a man who uh, was abducted from, I believe, uh, somewhere in South Australia. And when he was abducted, I think he was roughly 22 years old or so. Uh, and I just got my notes everywhere here, so I'll just have to co- go from memory. But when this guy was abducted, he was taken aboard a craft. Um, you know, similar time window technology kind of stuff was alleged to occur, that he, was, he came back at the wrong time. But remember how I told you on the Plus show, right? There was this story that Rex got of a woman describing that she too was abducted. She was pulled out through her wall by invisible aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she was pulled out and placed upon this craft, she was shoved into the back of some weird floating, uh, it looked like a car, but it was a futuristic car. And she saw all these black cylinders. Like there were all these black cylinders in this room of the craft. And the black cylinders, she's like, what are those things? And the alien was like, oh, they're the souls of the people that we've harvested. And which just didn't make sense. Like it was kind of strange and weird, but the idea was part of some type of exchange program where they would take the soul of a human and then yeah, put it into right. another body and <laughs> yeah. reanimate a corpse on another planet. Yeah. <laughs> that they've taken wild stuff. Um, but this guy, this young man that was abducted, right? He was... Uh, injected with some type of implant or a substance, a fluid of some kind. and But it seemed to be etheric, right? Because when he came back, not only did he start to have you know disturbing recollections like what that woman described of interactions with ETs, the biggest problem for him is that he starts wandering around Adelaide. This is in South Australia, which is the, the capital city of South Australia. And as he's wandering around Adelaide, he's going to these certain points and all of a sudden it's like he has spontaneous time slips. He's like, <gasps> just being like, where does he go? Back into, well, he's not going anywhere, right? He's recalling a past life, right? And oh. through, I don't know whether it's regression or uh, whether it was told to Don Boyd or how this came through, but essentially what had happened was he pulled that information that he had been injected with past life memories of someone else while he was abducted. Whoops. <laughs> Why would they do that? <laughs> Just for fun. Well, that's is it part of some greater experiment that they're conducting on human beings? Like, why would they do that? So, where this all comes together, right? And this is where it's all it's all very unusual. But I think Rex may be onto something, particularly in the Blue Mountains region, right? There is a whole collection. There are multiple, and you can see all of them here, Ben. I've just got pages yeah, and pages get more notes, of notes next time. This Jeez. Stuff, right? Which I might go. Have you heard of computers? Though, but, there is just so many reports of people having bizarre time slips, right? Very, very bizarre time slips in the Blue Mountains region. You know, they're seeing, um, there was one particular one where all of a sudden someone was flung into what appeared to be a gold field um, and they could see children playing around and a woman, you know, in a long kind of flowing coat. And then all of a sudden they're back. There was a guy that wandered down a hill and this hill had recently been burnt through a... Um, a bushfire, but when he descended down to the bottom of the hill, he suddenly said it got cold and misty and he turned around and it was all like prehistoric, tropical kind of landscape right. and then looked back again and it had changed. Um, there was a woman that had, no, there was a young man that had described seeing this city, this town, but it was like an old town. And he was like sitting up on this hill and he's, he's watching and he sees this town, he sees all these old 1950s cars and He's just shocked by it because he looks back and then it's gone, right? And this is all in the Blue Mountains. This is in the Blue Mountains. Um, but then he goes and tells his father and his father's like, there's no tent out there. What are you talking about? He's like, no, I saw it. And he described it. Now, they finally go back out there. When they go back out there this time, it's a dam now. And what he was describing is that there was a town there oh, in the 1950s. to make the dam. And they put a town in. Right. And the town was then flooded by the dam. Right. And so he would got had this like spontaneous time slip. 
so many of these stories. So some, don't go to the Blue Mountains. No, that's the that's the tip. Okay, so it, this is just my interpretation weird, weird of people up there. This. Weird place. <laughs> so Rex points out that there may be uh, experiments that are taking place in this underground facility, right? So whether or not it's the experiments for, because he's, and this is what he says, there is some type of spacefaring civilization experiment or experiments that have been conducted in this underground base. When they're conducting those experiments, it causes spontaneous time slips to anyone that is in the vicinity because it's time window technology. Guess what it's powered by? Guess why it's at that particular site? This ancient group, that constructed all these stones and these monoliths all around, it's because they were pulling energy from the earth and these stones are not astronomical connections. They're power plants. They're some type of natural earth energy that is fueling their civilization. And the Blue Mountains is one of these pivotal locations for it. They're drawing on this energy and using it for their time window technology. Cracked the case. I'm like, that, you know, sounds just as good as any other theory. I'm going with that. <laughs> that works for me. So, yes, in our plus extension, we will describe uh, the story of the cast of the alien with the very small penis that, uh, and I'm not kidding, that went yes. into in great detail, was described by Rex in great detail. So once we're done with your, your ridiculous, nonsensical content, I'm going to <laughs> tell you the story of Beth Gear and how she found herself in the strong, muscly arms of a hot squid man. Yeah, because uh, that's, that's not nonsensical at all. That's great. This is such a hot chaff, hot off the press, hot chaff story. Uh, it actually occurred in June of this year. Oh, that is that's hot how, chaff. That's how that fresh. That is microwave chaff. That's how fresh this hot, steaming squid, man. It's a very inky plus extension coming up after the break. <laughs> when we, <laughs> if you want once we've done Get with your, ink. once we're done with your ridiculous Rex Gilroy nonsense stories. <laughs> We're going to get into the hot, inky goodness in Plus. Don't say that. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash Plus for all the details. Sign up today. Get access to the big extensions we do every single week. You also get entirely exclusive shows every single Tuesday when you sign up for Plus. Plus members also get a totally ad-free version of the show, a higher quality MP3 of the show. And if you sign up for Emmy Max, you get access to our entire back catalogue as well. Sign up today. Help support your favorite show. It's only nine bucks a month. That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Thanks for listening. Thanks for suspending disbelief. And we'll stick around for your plus extension plus members. And for everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Plus extension, great to have you with us now. I've been looking forward.